part two. So we're going to dig into self-control. I thought I would pick a really light passage before we move into into the week of crazy family dynamics in which I believe self-control will need to be exercised at great length this week for many of us. So we're going we're gonna to launch into that. But before we do that, we've been doing a practice of saying a prayer together to kind of help center us, uh, to remind us of why we're here, to help us remember. I know a lot of you have mentioned that you've been practicing this prayer every day. And I love that. I love to see um, the, own, the, the transformation process happening in all of us. So I'm going to invite you to say this prayer with me. Let's say it together one more time as we conclude with our series. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Amen. So when we began the journey, I had thrown out a practice, an invitation for you to look at maybe two or three of the characteristics that you could say, these things seem to be growing in me. And that to celebrate that, to say, man, I see joy, I see self-control, I see gentleness just ripening in my life, and I want to rejoice in that. And I had asked you to just launch from a spirit of gratitude to say, thank you, thank you, God, for these things growing in me. And then I ask you to identify a couple that you weren't doing so well in, that you needed help with, that you wanted to see more, um, more of an eruption in your life of those particular fruit. And for many of us, what I had continued to hear was a lack of patience. That seems to be a pretty consistent one. And then also self-control. That's why we're spending just a couple of weeks on self-control. When we began our journey, I had shared with you how um, in my own life, I was lacking joy. Uh, Joy wasn't ruminating inside of me, and I needed more joy in my life. So many of you would come up to me after the services and throughout the week, you would send me prayers of inspiration. You would let me know that you were praying for me. And I, I want to express my gratitude to you for praying with me specifically just for joy to be more evident in my life. And I am seeing so much more joy in me. It's authentic and it's not BS. I mean, this is real. Like the stuff is really rising in me. And I'm so grateful for God's people to rally around each other. And I wanted to say thank you for that. Um, this, This series has been transforming for me. Just being able to come and share from my heart, uh, I've just been so excited to move us through it and to grow in my own journey with Christ. So I have operated with a deep sense of gratitude through this journey of the fruit of the Spirit. And I just wanna say thank you, Jesus, for the growth that's happening in all of us. And I see it in your lives. I see it in your, in your prayer. I see it in your groups. I see you talking about it, living into it. And so my hope is that just because we're coming to a close, that our dialogue and our journey around the fruit of the Spirit is just getting started. We're gonna turn that thing all the way up to 11 and really crank it to the top with the fruit of the Spirit. So I chose Genesis 3 this morning uh, around the idea of self-control because I believe that the passage really essentially is all about temptation and how temptation works in our lives, kind of at a, like a micro level. And we're gonna break it down this morning. We're gonna kind of get into like the, the nitty gritty of how temptation works. But before we do that, a review from last week, just a quick review. 
we had talked about um, the counterfeit of self-control. And I had stated last week that I believe the counterfeit of self-control is stoicism. Stoicism has more to do with you just keeping control for your own sake, kind of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, making sure that you're in control for yourself and that ultimately we want freedom in our lives and the only way to achieve freedom is to achieve some kind of control, that that keeps us in charge of our lives. And to a degree that's true, but I, think that's, I don't think that's sustainable and I don't think that's the kind of self-control that is talked about in the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, I think stoicism is just self-control without God. So we don't need God's power. We don't need God in our lives. It's, it's a nice concept, a nice addition to life. But the admission and the yielding of the heart, like I need God in my life, I need the power of the Spirit in my life, or I'm not going to be able to practice self-control. So it's not just for my own sake. I had also stated last week that self-control comes when you want something more than yourself, that it has to be something bigger, that it can't just be about you gaining control. It has to be something bigger than just for your own satisfaction. And then we had also talked about how self-control actually grows in us is that one of them was when you begin to envision the long-term goal. Like what is it that we're going after? Why are we going after these things? What is the vision that's pulling us into the future? And I had said that for Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, it was the glory of God, his vision of God's glory. And glory, when you begin to break it down, is that word for, for weight, significance, matter, importance. So how weighty is God in your life? And then we had talked about developing practices that help us choose the important thing over the urgent thing. And that the important thing for Jesus was always to love God, to love people, and to love yourself. That in the sense of all of those things happening together, love of God, love of others, love of self, how God has made you and wired you. The urgent is to please yourself, to go after that which is urgent, kind of like the tyranny of the urgent is a common thread that we see throughout our culture and society, that we always have to react to the tyranny of the urgent. But the beauty of self-control is that we choose the important thing over the tyranny of the urgent and learning how to create practices that will enable us to do so. Now, if I was to bring all of that together and talk about self-control and captured in one beautiful expression, what I would say is this, that self-control is a matter of getting in touch with reality. Like God's truth, the bedrock of that which is most real. Not a distortion of it, but getting in touch with God's deepest sense of what is most real and most true. Getting in touch with God's truth and God's reality as the ultimate focus taking us forward. Now, Genesis chapter three, we're gonna move through it this morning. So if you wanna keep your Bibles open, just as a reference point, to be looking at Genesis chapter three, please do so. Now, as I was reading through the passage this week, there's a question in there, and this is one of those loaded questions. You know what I'm talking about? Like somebody asks you a question, and you know like, oh, there's something behind the question. They're not just asking a question. This is what we call a loaded question. And I'm always interested in those kinds of questions because people will throw them in your direction and be like, so what exactly are you asking? There's something behind what you're saying. So it's the thing behind the thing. 
And the question in Genesis 3 that comes from the serpent is this question. Did God really say? Great question, but it's a loaded question. And this is how the enemy works. This small, subtle, tiny insinuation that God can't be trusted. Did God really say? That's the beginning of the question. Did God really say? I think this is a loaded question because it's full of these subtle insinuations that God can't truly be trusted. So I immediately thought of Matthew chapter four. And over in the gospel of Matthew, the first gospel, Matthew chapter four, Jesus is beginning his ministry. He had just been baptized. And then the Holy Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted and tried. And the reason why Jesus goes into the wilderness is kind of like a Moses move. He's gotta be there for 40 days, 40 nights. And he's getting ready to kind of set up this new launch into the mission of God in the world. But before he goes, he moves out into the desert to learn utter and complete dependence upon his father. While he's in the desert, if you read Matthew chapter four, it's a fascinating breakdown of how temptation works. The enemy comes to Jesus and and begins to inject a distorted view of God. And I think that's how it begins, how he injects a kind of a distortion of what is true. So ultimately, self-control comes when we see truth kind of as the bedrock of society. This is, this is what is most real, what is most true. And the enemy loves to kind of tweak at that and pull it apart to create a distorted view of God. And I think when you have a distorted view of God, which is if we're honest, I think most of us do have a distorted view to some degree, that you will then have a distorted view of reality. So the enemy comes in and starts to go after Jesus' humanity. So Jesus is both fully God and yet fully human at the same time. I don't fully understand that. But in his humanity, instead of relying on his power and his godness, he turns to his humanity to learn dependence upon his father. And Jesus, um, the enemy goes after Jesus' humanity here, and he says things like this. You look pretty hungry, right? You know, um, I I don't know why God would put you in this situation in the first place. Like, seriously? You are the son of the living God. Can't you take these stones and turn them into bread? Don't you deserve to have just one bite, just a little bit? In other words, like, hey, take care of yourself. God has brought you out here to fail. He's bailed on you. He's not for you. He's against you. And yet Jesus, in his humanity, fully human, learns how to completely depend on his Father, and he turns towards deeper reality and truth. And how does Jesus do that? He starts quoting Scripture. Huh, interesting. Jesus starts quoting scripture and he says, man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus deals with temptation in terms of the truth, always. So I want us to pay attention to that. Jesus deals with temptation in terms of the truth. He turns to scripture and he starts to pull scripture up like we talked about last week. So when we're not thinking clearly, or we're blurry, or we're overwhelmed, and we start buying into subtle lies because we're vulnerable or susceptible, we start to say things like, you know, I've tried my best. I've held up my end of the deal. Why isn't God holding up his end of the deal? Or the subtle stuff that starts to seep in. I've been faithful and true, and I've done all the right things that you've asked me to do, and life still isn't working out. So what's the point? Why be faithful? 
Why be all in? Why be radical? Why be a Christ follower or a devout in my pursuit of obedience? I mean, what's the point? Again, lies, distortion of truth, it begins to break down at the fabric, at the bedrock, moving us out of a touch with reality. It's like a form of spiritual insanity that starts to settle into the human heart. And there's always a subtle temptation to become bitter, to move towards resentment, to move deeper into a despondent posture because things aren't going the way that we had hoped that they would go. Or there's that subtle temptation to bite someone's head off because we're, we're angry or something rises up inside of us. All of it stemming from lies. Again, subtle insinuations stemming from the lie going on in the root of our hearts. I think all temptation strategies that the enemy whispers in our ears are all ways that he deals with us. And I think there's what we would call the flesh. And we talked about the flesh last week kind of being the command center of the human heart. And that the flesh isn't just your physical body. That flesh is that part of you that wants to be in control. And I think the enemy is always giving us these tiny whispers to our flesh, demanding us to please ourselves. And then there's the world that we live in that's constantly sending us messages, a bombardment of messages. Did God really say that? You're, you're entitled to blow off a little bit of steam. It's going to be okay. You work hard. And so the world sends us messages. And then we have what the scriptures call the accuser or the devil or the father of lies. And the way that the father of lies is he works through lying. And he comes in, which is these little subtle accusations. And what I think the enemy does is he tries to constantly get us to underestimate his power in our lives. If we can just underestimate it, don't make such a big deal about it. Again, the scriptures give us clear definition as to who our three enemies are. It like identifies our three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So the world, again, it's a, it's a system. It's a belief system. And then you got the flesh, that part of you that's like, I, I want to be in control. I'm like, yeah, I know. I have that too. And then thirdly, you have the accuser who then plays off of the world's messages and plays off of our own flesh and just whispers accusations, asking us questions that are loaded. So let's unpack this a little bit more this morning out of Genesis 3. The lie sold to humanity that I think is continuing to be sold to humanity. And I'm hoping that God will begin to open our eyes to things in our own lives where we see these things seeping in and we may not be aware. The first lie, God is a liar. God can't be trusted. I think this is what the enemy is going after. He says, eat the apple. God doesn't want you to eat the apple because he knows if you eat the apple, then you're going to be his equal and he's afraid that if you become his equal, the whole thing falls apart. So he wants to stay up here and keep you down here. God's keeping you from the truth. He doesn't want you to become enlightened. So the enemy begins to twist that. Now hear this, friends. That, that lie, I think, is deep in the heart of every human being on the face of the earth. That thing is, is there. Remember what I said last week about sin. Sin, I think, essentially is an infection of the imagination. So our imaginations get infected like with these little microorganisms that seep into our systems and that little infection that comes in that says these things will actually satisfy you, so give yourself over to these desires. Stay in control because no one, no one else really is. So it's up to you. In fact, if you eat the fruit, if, if you don't eat the fruit, you're gonna be missing out. 
And then we have FOMO in our society, right? That fear of missing out. Like, I don't want to miss out. I don't want to be cut off from this. Like, what if I miss out on that opportunity that everybody else seems to be enjoying? I don't want to miss out on that. So we have this fear of always being, uh, putting limits on ourselves. We can't limit ourselves too much. We can't get too serious about our faith. We can't be overly committed because it's 2019. It's like, come on, just be ridiculous. And why are we even talking about a devil? Aren't we more sophisticated than that? It's like, Jonathan, you seemed like you were pretty intelligent until now. And so we're talking about a devil. We're talking about the enemy. We're talking about a serpent. We're talking about whispers. But I'm, I'm here to tell you, friends, these things are so subtle and so small. All I'm trying to do is bring it to the surface so we can look at it. You can come up with your own conclusions. I'm not telling you what to think. But I'm suggesting to look at it and to begin to take it apart and to really look at the things going on deep down inside of us where we might say, I'm afraid of missing out. I'm afraid of being coming overly committed because if I get too radical or too obedient or too extreme, then I'm gonna miss out. And we can't do that. Certainly not. The subtle insinuations begin with tiny little whispers that always move us towards distortion, away from the bedrock of reality deeper into a distorted view of reality. And when we have a distorted view of God, our, our view of reality will become very blurry. So I think that's the first move. Those little subtle insinuations. The second thing that I see going on here is what I would call the lure of little preparatory, preparatory sins. The little tiny preparatory sins that eventually lead to bigger issues of trust. Now let's get back to the insinuation. Back to the question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Now, if you're paying careful attention to the text, you will see what's really going on behind that question. There's some major exaggeration going on here. And this is what happens so often is things get overly exaggerated and we start to see like, yeah, this, this whole view of reality is starting to get really fuzzy and blurry, but the original boundary that God had established was not you can't eat of any tree in the garden. The original boundary was you can't eat of this one tree. What we forget is that everything else was free. Like all, all of this is for you. I think that's a move of radical generosity that God established order and says, listen, my heart is so radically generous and I so wanna bless you that you have access to everything except for this one thing, just this one tree. And the subtle insinuation was, did, did God, but did God really mean that? Did God really say that you shouldn't eat that? The enemy, the accuser, is accusing God of not being fair. God isn't fair. God's a drag, a total drag. And notice how Eve joins in with the insinuation. This is really amazing. Unless you read it very carefully, again, you don't see kind of the subtle beginnings of how sin seeps into our system. Sin is an infection of the imagination. Our imaginations start to get these little microorganisms that move around and create distortions of what is most real. So the first sin is not disobeying the command. The first sin is when you begin to resent the command. So pay attention to the resentment that's going on inside of your heart. The first sin begins with resentment. You see, when we make a choice, and for many of us it starts at a subconscious level and then it moves into more of a conscious decision that we make, we might start to believe, well, you know what? The command isn't practical. 
And that subtle insinuation, the command's kind of getting in the way of what I want to do in life. And after all, I mean, kind of we're, we're, we're beyond that. We've evolved as humans, really. Like this ancient text is really going to direct how we live our lives. But that subtle insinuation, I can't really truly be free until I get out from under this. I have to get out from under these boundaries. And it begins with very small doses. We begin to resent the boundary. Now, there's five lies going on here that I want to identify. The first lie is this. It's a subtle insinuation that God was unfair. Eve starts to buy into this uh, completely unfair question, this boundary that God establishes. She moves from that, and then she begins to desire the fruit. Notice what it says in the text. She looked and she saw how delightful, how beautiful. She looked and she saw, which means she looked and she started to gaze at it. You know that gaze that holds your attention? You're like, oh, that. That's amazing. And you start to gaze upon it, and it starts to get into your imagination. And so what sin does is it gets into the imagination and starts to distort reality. And then she makes a decision. So she moves from imagination into a decision, which leads her to the fourth lie. She actually takes, he takes a bite too. So they're both participating in this distorted view of reality. And my friends, in seven verses, seven all of history comes crashing to the ground, right? I mean, it's amazing to me. It, like, it kind of captures all of history, all of the world, all of humanity, all of like, what we see in society today in seven short verses. That's the miracle of scripture to me. It's like it says it all in seven verses. Like, my goodness, unpacking all of it. And it always goes back to resentment, back to tiny little resentments. It goes back to that moment when you have a resentment about God who has the audacity to tell us how to live our lives? Are you kidding me? Who do you think you are? And it operates at a very low level. Years ago, one of my mentors had brought this to my attention. And he said to me, and I'll I'll never forget what he said to me, is that somebody who is full of the Holy Spirit or somebody who calls themselves a Christ follower in the world loves to have God tell them what to do. Like, you love it. Like, you take great delight in God telling you what to do, creating boundaries for your life. You're like, oh, I I can't wait for God to tell me what to do because then that's what I get to do. And I get to live into that reality. You take great delight in God's commands. Psalm one, the psalmist is writing and the psalmist says, I meditate on the law of God day and night and I take great delight in God commanding me. And it's like the psalmist comes with this open yielded heart. God command me, tell me how to live, tell me what to do. I yield myself to you completely and I open myself to your heart. Take out these desires in me that are taking me into deeper, deeper senses of a distortion of reality and open me up so that I can see what is truly real. Get me to the heart of what is most real and most desirable and so I open myself up to you, Holy Spirit. So let's talk about sex for a moment. How's that for a segue? We're obsessed with it. Our society is obsessed with it because we're human beings and we have sexual desires, okay? Good, that means you're alive. Now, what we do with those desires, I mean, that, that sucker can run rampant and it creates all sorts of problems. But if you look at your own sexual desires and whether it be you're moving into deeper realms of pornography or a misuse of sex or things that go into the dark, 
That's where the distortion begins to really eat away at the fabric of the heart. But I think what is helpful, instead of me just saying, hey, knock it off, stop doing that, we have to take it and break it down frame by frame. So if you break it down, it's like slowing down a film and actually seeing what's really going on so you can catch it kind of in its early stages. So if we take it and break it down frame by frame and see how the connections link together and how the progression happens, I think we can start to experience some more freedom in our lives, getting kind of again back to the root of what's going on. Why, why am I participating in these actions? So frame by frame, first, first move, you have the thought. Is the thought wrong? Absolutely not. Everybody, everybody in this room, the moment I said sex, you're like, okay, there we go. Now we're talking about something. We all have the thought. Now, it's what you do with the thought that matters. If you gaze upon it, the imagination, the move towards, you start to delight in the thought. Again, nothing wrong with the thought, but then the thought becomes more than a thought. Martin Luther says this, and I love this. He says, you can stop birds from flying around, but you can't stop them from making nests in your hair. Oh, you can stop them from making nests in your hair. I'm like, if we can't, then we're screwed, right? (laughs) You can stop them from making nests in your hair. The thought occurs. Now, you can weigh it. You can gaze upon it. You can imagine it. That's what I mean when I say you can weigh it. There's a story in the Old Testament about a guy named Achan, and Achan's part of God's people, and God comes to the Israelites, and he tells them, here's the deal, friends. When you go in and you take a city, what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to take any of the gold or the riches for yourselves. Instead, bring them back and put them in the tabernacle. Achan decides, that's a ridiculous rule. And he takes it and he looks at it and he weighs it, it says. Achan looks at the gold and he begins to weigh it. He saw that the jewelry was fine, the robes are fine. This could put my family ahead in a really good place. And I'm drawn to that phrase, he saw, he looked, he gazed upon it. The question that I have is, how does he know how much the gold weighs? How did he know? He had to have been in there, in the tent, weighing it, measuring it, seeing what's really going on here. Do you see what's happening? He's already beginning to resent the command. The moment he goes in and he weighs, he's resenting the commandment. So subtle. And then it moves into a fantasy, not really wrong to think about it, but truly wrong to participate in it. And then he goes all the way with the fantasy and things don't end well for Achan. Moves to action. What about David and Bathsheba? This one really intrigues me. David, the mighty king, uh, poet, musician, communicator, warrior, strong, just like he's got everything going for him. That dude is like A plus, nailing it. And one day, it says that David was at home during the season that kings were supposed to be at war. So the first thing is that David is lazy. He's home when kings are supposed to be at war. And he's walking around and he sees Bathsheba taking a bath. And the text says that he saw how beautiful she was. He saw. Again, he looked and he saw and he began to weigh it and he began to measure it. And it goes into the imagination, turns into a fantasy, and then he acts. And the whole thing falls apart. It breaks down. You have to break it down in order to see how it sneaks up on us. Now, I think temptations come at four 
seasons in our lives, and I wanna draw your attention to these four seasons. The first one is this, that I would say, the first season is what I would call the post-conversion letdown. Now, I know in this room that many of you have been following Jesus for a long period of time. Some of you are new to the faith. Some of you are considering uh, Christianity. You're just kind of looking at it, observing. But for those of you who have said yes to Jesus recently, this post-conversion letdown, I I see it happen so often. As a pastor, I've walked with so many people who have come to Christ, and along comes this person, they surrender their lives to Jesus, they're, they're all in, there's this transformation that happens, they're excited, they're growing, they're seeing things that are just ultimate reality for the first time, and then the accuser starts to show them areas in their lives that are breaking down, impatience, anger, lust. And I've watched Christians, new Christians who have come into the faith, who have a very little understanding of God's good grace, that the reason, the very reason why you can even say yes to Jesus is because Jesus makes the first move, not you. God makes the first move towards you. He's, he's a pursuer. God is always in pursuit of people. And so we respond to that pursuit. But for many of us, that's hard to understand. We think the reason why I'm saved is because I'm so wonderful that I gave my life to Christ. Right? I'm, I did it. Good for me. I had an awakening. I have, I have enough intellect. I have enough, like I've reasoned it out. And it makes sense to me. And then the accuser comes in and loves to invite some of your sins to erupt in a sense. And they come to the surface. And and I've watched people so often, they're following Jesus, they think, oh my gosh, this is gonna totally fix my life. And then these things begin to erupt in their lives and they get so cast down. And they start to lose their assurance. Like, they start questioning, like, well, maybe I'm not a Christian. And that's exactly what the accuser does. Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not really a Christian. Maybe maybe it didn't really take, didn't really settle in. And I see it time in time, again, the accuser tempts, accuses, goes after the heart. The second one, the second season is this, and I think that whenever you decide to step up and take a greater role in the kingdom of God, you are in a much more vulnerable position. When you decide to take on a more of a leadership mantle or to, to be giving more of your time and your sacrificing and your money and your heart into the cause of the kingdom of God in the world, it's like you move from the back lines into the front lines. You were a private, and now you're in the front. And I can guarantee you, if you move towards the front, you're gonna take a few bullets. And they come and they hit you in the shoulder. And so often what happens is that discouragement begins to settle in because we're so vulnerable, we don't take into consideration that the reason I've stepped into this is because I wanna see more flourishing in the world, and yet I'm taking on more hits from the enemy. And it happens. Mark my words, it happens. The third one, the third season, is what I would call overconfidence and underestimation. And this is where I see a large portion of the church today. Not just you all, beautiful people, but as I look at the church in America, this is what I see going on, an overconfidence and an underestimation. You think everything is going along really smooth. You've got this, right? You've absolutely got this, and you start to relax. And you start to rest in the blessings. And you start to buy into the lie. The reason why God is blessing me is because I'm obedient. And you think that your obedience is somehow putting God in the position where he has to take care of you. I'm not saying obedience is a bad thing, but it gets back to motivation. Why are you being obedient? Is it manipulation? Are you trying to negotiate with God? Again, it's an underestimation that happens, and it's so subtle. God is blessing me because... I'm obedient. We take our eyes off of the blesser 
and we fix them on the blessings. And the goal is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. That's what the scriptures say. It's how we began the journey. I said, you gotta take your face and turn it to Jesus all the time and have people in your lives who are taking your face and turning it to Jesus. Or the breakdown begins to happen and you get really comfortable. My friends, I hope and pray that you never get comfortable. That life is always challenging. That life is always driving you to your knees in a place of desperation where the hunger and the thirst is driving you forward for the causes of Christ in the world and that you never get comfortable. And the fourth season is this. We forget who God is and we buy the lie. Man, we are so forgetful. We forget who Jesus is. We forget that he is our only hope. We forget that the scriptures say, without Christ, I'm nothing. And we start to think, well, maybe I am. Nope, without Christ, I'm nothing. He's everything to me, the sustainer of my life. And then the hunger and the desire and the thirst diminishes. And when you give into the temptation and you buy the lie, you're forgetting all that Christ has done for you and continues to do for you, my friends. My invitation for you this morning is, do you wake up every morning and go, oh my gosh, I'm a Christian? Are you kidding me? Me? Jonathan Wollner? raised in a Christian home by a pastor is a Christian? Even when you've seen all the stuff behind the Iron Curtain in the church? Yep. I sometimes, I sometimes ask myself, like, what am I still doing in the game? I've seen, I've seen a lot. But I'm like, no, no, I'm a miracle. And I hope and pray that you never lose the vision that you are a miracle, friends. You're a miracle. The fact that you're a Christian is a miracle because God pursued you first and then you said yes, not because you're smart or savvy, it's because your heart was opened up and you saw things that were real for the first time and you said yes to Jesus. So it doesn't have anything to do with your intellect. It has everything to do with God's pursuit of us. He makes the first move, friends. Never lose the wonder of that. Never underestimate the power of the enemy. Never get comfortable. Because man, the world, the flesh, and the devil is coming for you, but God is greater. Greater is he that is in the world than he that lives in us. God, God living and breathing in us, moving in us, calling us to a deeper sense of trust. So I'm gonna ask you this morning just to take a few moments and to ask the Holy Spirit to change, transform, reveal, things in us that are distortions, little subtle insinuations that we see operating in our own lives. Holy Spirit, reveal those things to us. And as you're thinking about those things, I'm gonna ask those of you in the room who have not yet said yes to Jesus and you're looking at following Christ for the first time, I wanna extend an invitation to you that if you are here this morning and you're like, man, I'm feeling the invitation. I am feeling the tug. I am feeling like I'm opening up and seeing Christ for the first time. I invite you to simply say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to be a follower of you. I want to follow you in the world. I want to be what you're about in the world. I want to love the way you love. So I give my heart, my life, my desires to you. I yield myself to you. Just take a moment. 
and breathe that in. And then we're gonna respond by singing Be Thou My Vision, that old, beautiful hymn, that Jesus would become our vision going forward, that he would be the one to infect our imagination, help us to see what is most real. vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that Thou art, Thou my best heart by day or by night, waking or sleeping, Thy presence my life. Let's stand together. Be thou my wisdom. Be thou my wisdom and thou my truth. I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great Father and I thy true child. Thou in me dwelling I with thee one Riches I heed not Nor man's empty praise Thou mine inheritance Now and always Thou and thou only First in my King of heaven, my treasure thou art. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Still be my vision. God bless you so that you can enjoy him and not just the things that he gives to you.
because he's a blesser. He wants to bless you. He wants to give you good things. He wants to take care of you. He's coming for you. So may he bless you. May he keep you rooted in what is real. May he cause his face to shine upon you so that you can start to see light in the darkness. You can see what is real and what is not and yield yourself to that. Moving with the posture this week that God, I take great delight in you telling me what to do. Command me, I delight in you. And may he lift up his countenance upon you so that his countenance, his presence become like self-control built around your life like a city, fortified, safe, secure, knowing that he's got it under his control and not yours living for his sake in the world and not just our own. And may he fill you with the deepest kind of shalom so that the peace of God, the peace of the spirit and the peace of the son would fill you to the point where it hums and buzzes in your life. May he fill you now with his grace and his peace. Amen.